God, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. God, thank you for the chance to be here to worship you. Uh, God, we thank you for the church. God, we know the church uh, is not a building, it's the people. So God, we thank you for the opportunity to be gathered with your people today. God, I pray for your presence to rest on us here. God, I pray that you would, would allow your presence to speak to us, to draw us near to you. That God, you would, would encourage us, that you would convict us, and that God, you would grow us deeper in love with you. God, I pray that you would help us to put the distractions out of our minds. God, I pray as a pastor that I would step out of the way, that God, you would be the one who speaks clearly today, God. We love you and praise you and plead for your presence over us now as we open up your word. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So I want you, I want you to picture in your mind, I want you to picture Pete. Now you may, you may know Pete, maybe you don't know Pete. But you know a guy who is just like Pete. Pete is the guy who always speaks before he thinks. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. He's the guy who you never know what is going to come out of his mouth. He's the guy with no filter. You just never know. He's the guy that when you get ready to have your your family holiday celebration, you're afraid to invite him. Because you know what's going to happen is when everybody's around the dinner table... He's going to say that one thing that nobody is supposed to say. And then all of a sudden, there's going to be tears flowing around the dinner table. There's going to be angry outbursts at the dinner table. All because that guy said that one thing that nobody should have said. So picture Pete sitting in the corner with his head up against the wall. He's done it again. He's done it again, but this time, this time he's hurt his dearest and closest friend. This time he's, huff, he's hurt the one person that he never thought he would hurt before. Is there any hope for Pete? Is there any hope for his relationship with his dear friend? Then there's Joe. Joe's the guy who can't keep a job. He's the guy, when you give everything in front of him, that he should succeed, that he doesn't. I mean, Joe, he's the guy who tried his hand at the family business. Dad gives the kids the business, and all the siblings, they fire Joe. And say, Joe, you're out of here. And they sent Joe packing. Joe decides, hey, I'm going to go try my job as a, as a manager. I'll be a manager. And that lasts for a little while until he is fired. And then not only that, he's thrown into jail. Sitting in prison, you can picture Joe without any hope, wondering, what do I do now? And what about that girl? She doesn't even need a name. She's failed as well, just she doesn't fail at work, she fails at relationships. Her first marriage ended in a divorce. Her second marriage ended there too. By the time she went to her third divorce, she had her own parking stall at the county clerk so she could go right in to get the divorce handled quickly at the county clerk's office. If the fourth divorce didn't remove any doubt, the fifth divorce helped her understand there really is no hope for me in relationships. I'm destined to fail. People and their character flaws. Pete Pete's the guy who always speaks before he thinks. Joe, Joe, he fails where he should succeed. And, and, and this dear lady, she can't keep a relationship intact. But what about you? What about your character flaws? What about my character flaws? What is, for you, what is that one prevailing problem 
that commandeers your life. That thing that no matter how hard you try, it seems to always be there. I know some in here, you're going to be prone to lie. Some of you are prone to cheat. Others are prone to doubt. Maybe you worry. Everybody worries. I mean, everybody has some worry in them. But your worry is beyond that. Your worry becomes a debilitating anxiety that leaves you frozen in fear. Where you're afraid to make a move because you have that worry and that anxiety inside of you. Maybe, maybe you're judgmental. Now, again, everybody passes some sort of judgment, but, but you, you're kind of like, you're kind of like a, a federal judge. You pass more judgments than the federal judge. You're just judging, judging, judging. Maybe you've got the explosive temper. Maybe you've got a fragile self-image. Maybe you've got the appetite that could consume your entire freezer in one setting. Maybe, maybe you have a distrust for authority. What is that character flaw? What is that struggle inside of you that you know you have? Oftentimes we justify these and say, well, that's just the way I am. I can't help it. It's just the way I'm wired. It's the way I was born. It was the way I was raised. I can't help the fact that I'm like this, that I'm prone to wander, that I'm prone to lie, to steal, whatever it is. So what is that one bad habit? What is that one weakness? What is the one rotten attitude that you just cannot kick? See, one way to look at these character flaws is we could say that Satan has a stronghold in your life. Stronghold is is just a a great definition for, for, for those character flaws in our lives. There's really two definitions that we can determine from a a stronghold. A stronghold could first be described as a a fortress, a citadel, having thick walls, tall gates, uh, protected, kind of an unbreakable place. But a stronghold could also be identified as a, a place where the devil himself has staked a claim in your life. That he's taking something, he's taking that weakness, and he's put a wall around it, and he said, you are not going to penetrate this weakness. I'm holding on to this, and you are not going to get rid of this weakness in your life. Seasons come, and seasons go, and that one weakness, that character flaw, is always there. It lives up to both sides of that word, stronghold. Strong enough that it grips like a vice, but then it's stubborn enough that it continues to hold on no matter how hard we shake. Strongholds, old, difficult, discouraging challenges. In our text today, we've been in a series looking at the life of King David. We're going to be in today in 2 Samuel chapter 5. I encourage you to turn there. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, David is going to face a stronghold. But before we jump into there, I want to kind of fill us in with where we've been the last few weeks. We're actually skipping a couple of, of chapters today to jump into 2 Samuel chapter 5. So if we remember what we've learned about David, we know that when David was a teenage boy, 15, 16, 17 years old, somewhere around there, that, that God sent the prophet Samuel to come and anoint David to be, to be the next king over Israel. Kind of a big deal. David's just nothing more than just a shepherd boy out tending the sheep in his father's fields. But at that point, David gets called out of, God calls David out of the, the fields and sends him over to, to the army. And that's where David fights Goliath and defeats Goliath. 
And at that point, David is brought into Saul's army to become a commander, a leader in the army. And David begins to be blessed everywhere he goes. Everything he does is blessed. And of course, that's going to cause the, the rage, the, the jealousy of the actual king over Israel, Saul. He becomes jealous of David's success. He becomes jealous that people like David. And so Saul begins this, this pursuit of David's life. This goes on for 12 years. 12 years Saul is using all of his resources, the army, everything else in Israel, and he's pursuing this little boy, David, this teenage boy. And he pursues him for 12 years straight. During these 12 years, we've seen how David experienced so much difficulty and hardship. We've really looked at it the past couple of weeks. That during this 12 years, David has been broken. David has been humbled. David has had everything that he leans on taken away from him. But the thing is, God had a purpose during those years in the wilderness. God was doing a work inside of David. It was during those years in the wilderness, in trial and in difficulty, that God would use that time to, to mold David into the kind of man that God wanted. A man that was after God's own heart. So let me just say, if you're in one of those seasons, if you're in a difficult season of life, where you feel like, man, I've got so much weighing down on me and these, these issues in front of me, let me just encourage you, God is doing a work inside of you. God has a purpose for whatever it is you're going through. You aren't going through this at random. God is doing something through you. So 1 Samuel 31, it tells the story of King Saul's death. The Philistines had attacked the Israelites and they went into battle. And Saul's three oldest sons, by the name of Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, they're killed in this battle. And Saul is seriously wounded. Now, because Saul is wounded and not dead. He says, I can't escape, but I don't want to be taken captive. And so what Saul does is he tries to get one of his soldiers, hey, come and take this sword and stab me and kill me so that I don't have to be taken captive. And the soldier says, I can't do that. And so Saul takes his own sword and he falls on it, taking his own life. Now you got to remember, it's been nearly 15 years Nearly 15 years since that time that God anointed David to be the king over Israel. And after all these years of, of Saul pursuing David's life, of all this difficulty, Saul is dead. Inflicted by his own self-inflicted wound, actually. And you've got to think, if there's any time for David to take the throne, this is it. Like, David, here's your chance, man. Run in there. Storm. Roll. Demand the, 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 the seat. Demand the throne. This is your opportunity. But that's not quite what happens. Because remember that when David was in the wilderness, David began to learn so much while he was on the run. Because God was molding David into a man after his own heart. So David learned how to lead and he learned how to rally others around him. So what David does is in 2 Samuel chapter 2, David inquires of God. And he says, God, what should I do? God, should I go to one of the cities? God, should I pursue the throne? And God answers and says this. I want you to go to Hebron. And I want you to become king over the southern kingdom of Judah. There, there are, 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 ends up being two, 
two kingdoms in the nation of Israel. You've got the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and you've got the southern kingdom, which is going to be called Judah. And so David begins his reign over the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom, they decide that Ishbosheth, who was the youngest of Saul's four sons, the only one who survived, that Ishbosheth should become the king over the northern kingdom of Israel. But the thing is, is Ishbosheth, I can't even say his name right now, he's, he's an incompetent leader. And in fact, in fact, while he's king, essentially the, the whole uh, uh, country is being run by Saul's former commander-in-chief, Abner. The story goes that eventually Abner is going to switch sides to join David's sides, where he's assassinated. Then uh, Ishbosheth is assassinated in his bed, and the northern kingdom becomes in despair. And this leads us to where we are, 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to start reading in verse 1. I encourage you to follow along. We've got the words on the screen or uh, in your Bible in front of you. Chapter 5, 2 Samuel verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, that's Hebron, not Lebron. And he said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David, king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. One of the things I keep wanting to do when I look at the life of David is I keep wanting to highlight this time frame. This fact that it has been a long time since that initial time when, when David was anointed to become king. David, we know, spent 12, and a, 12 some plus years on the run from King Saul. And we know that it says that he reigned in Hebron. He was a king in Hebron of the king of Judah for seven and a half years. So you've got a picture, finally. After 20 years, 20 years of waiting, how many of you would ever wait on a promise that long? That's a long time to wait for a promise. After 20 years, the rest of the tribes of Israel, they come to David and they acknowledge a couple of things. <coughs> Excuse me. They say, first, we are your flesh and bone. We are of the same kin. This is significant because if you remember what happened last week, remember how David, he went rogue and David abandoned the things of God and decided, I'm going to go and become a Philistine among Israel's eminent enemies. And David went and he, he, uh, he um, became one of the Philistines. He, he associated himself with the Philistines. So this is a significant thing. The leaders are saying, hey, you know what? I know that you went with the enemy. We're going to forgive you for that. We're going to call you our flesh and bone because you are one of us. And the leader said, in times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And not only that, they say, and the Lord said to you, you shall be a shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. The leaders of the entire country, they acknowledge not only that David has been faithful to them, that David has watched out for them, that David has been a hero for them, but they acknowledge God's call on David's life 
to become the king over all of the people. So finally, so finally it's official. 20 years in waiting, David becomes the king over Israel. But the thing is, he's inherited a divided kingdom. Because remember, you've got the northern kingdom who, who said, hey, we're going to make Ishbosheth our, our king. And then you've got the southern kingdom who made David king in the initial part. And they had this seven and a half years where there was this war, this battle between them. So David now becomes king over both kingdoms, over the nation of Israel. And you've got to understand, he's got a little bit of a divided kingdom. And what the nation of Israel needs is they need a strong leader. But not only that, they need a, uh, they need a strong location. They need a strong headquarters. So I'm going to be a little bit nerdy this morning. I'm going to have you guys put up that map. Sometimes I feel like when I'm looking at things in the Bible, I need to be able to see it to understand. So as you look, the blue is the northern kingdom of Israel and the yellow is the southern kingdom of Judah. And you can see right in the middle of the southern kingdom of, of Judah is, is a city called Hebron. And, and that, is where, that is where David had been serving as king over the southern kingdom. His current base was there. But the thing is, if David stays down in Hebron, down in the middle of the southern kingdom, it's going to be hard for him to rally those, those northern loyalists to his cause. But if, if David goes too far north, if he goes into the nation of Israel, the, the kingdom of Israel, then he'll isolate the south. And so what David needs is David needs a neutral, a, a centralized city. So David looks and he sees the city of Jerusalem. He sees Jerusalem. Now, when you and I think of, uh, uh, of Jerusalem, we think of temples and prophets. And maybe we begin to think of Middle East troubles. But when David sees Jerusalem in 1000 BC, he sees something very different. Look at verse 6 in our text today. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6. And it says, The king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the lame and the blind shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater. for The Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. See, this, this short little story tells us everything we need to know about Jerusalem. He, he, you see that word that we mentioned earlier, strongholds. We see it mentioned twice. We see it in verse 7. It says, David took the stronghold. And then you see it again in verse 9. It says, David lived in the stronghold. You see, the city of Jerusalem, it fits the description of, of the qualifications for what a stronghold would have been. It was old, it was difficult, it was a discouraging fortress that was set on the hill, uh, Ophel, uh, near the Kidron Valley. In fact, archaeologists, uh, they have done research in this area, they have found that the ancient city of Jerusalem, the original city, that there is evidence of a 12-acre wall that surrounded that city. And this wall is probably three feet thick. This is a big wall that protected this city. In addition to the wall, there were several watchtowers around the city to protect it. 
And you could picture what they would do is they would put soldiers on those watchtowers with bows and arrows. And if anybody came to try and climb up that wall to get into the city, they'd have plenty of time to shoot the, the intruders down. This was a fortress. This was a stronghold. This was a city that was very difficult to get into. In fact, this city was so stubborn that 400 years earlier, when Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land, Remember what happened? Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land. God gave them one instruction. Go into the promised land, and I want you to wipe everybody out. Drive them out from this land. Don't let anybody remain. And so this is Joshua's task. And they go into the, into the, into the promised land. They go into the region. And remember all the amazing things that God did to help them accomplish this. Remember, uh, they walked around the walls of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. There was one day when they were in battle and they needed more sunlight. So God caused the sun to stand still. God did amazing things for the Israelites so that they could be, so they could accomplish what he set them out to do. Except the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was inhabited by the Jebusites and it was within its territory. But you might want to write just in your Bible in the margin next to 2 Samuel chapter 5, write Joshua fifteen sixty three. Joshua 15.63, because Joshua 15.63 says, But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive them out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this very day. Jerusalem has been a stronghold within the nation, within the borders of Israel for over 400 years. And, and archaeologists believe for possibly 600 years prior to that. And so you look at the city of Jerusalem and say, this is a stronghold. This is a place that seems unpenetrable. This is a place that seems there's no way you're going to conquer it. And, and, and you read about the confidence that the Jebusites had in their own city. They taunted David in verse 6. They taunted him and they said, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. David, you can come and you can try and fight us. But man, we're so strong. We've got such a great location that we can even have the blind and the lame and the weak and the people who don't have much to offer. They can come and keep you out, David, because we are such a stronghold. There's no way you can come in and take our city. Isn't it true? Satan put some of those same thoughts into our minds. It's the same thoughts like this. You'll never overcome your bad habits. Thoughts like you were born white trash and you're always going to be white trash. You'll never change. You think you can overcome your addiction? Think again. These are the thoughts that Satan fills our minds when we start looking at our strongholds, when we start looking at our weak spots. You and I, we've heard the same kind of mocking that David is hearing from the Jebusites within the city of Jerusalem. But what our story needs is exactly what David's story has. Because there's a little word in our text. And I'll be honest, when I read this text the first 15 times, I missed this word completely. It, 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 it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little, simple, 12-lettered word that when I finally saw it, it just jumped off the page. Verse 7. Nevertheless, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. Doesn't matter that the city was old. 
Doesn't matter that the walls were difficult. Doesn't matter that the Jebusites were discouraging. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. Nevertheless, you want to know what nevertheless means? It means even though it seemed insurmountable. It means even even though everybody thought it was impossible. It means against all odds, when nobody expected it, nevertheless. Man, I think about what kind of nevertheless moments we'd love for God to write in our own lives. Maybe you've used drugs and alcohol to escape life. Nevertheless, God gave you a new life and a new purpose. Maybe you were born into a dysfunctional family. Nevertheless, God made your family into a new story for your kids. You didn't go to college. Nevertheless, you worked hard and became successful. Maybe you were given up on by people and they said, there's no hope for you. Nevertheless, you started over. Wouldn't we love for God to write a nevertheless story, the nevertheless moment in our own lives? See, God is a God of neverthelesses. Strongholds mean nothing to him. The apostle Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians, he wrote, the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. See, we, we, we begin to look at our strongholds, look at our weak spots, and we say, I'm going to come, and we come with a toothpick and say, I'm going to get rid of you. But when we come in the power of God, God comes in with battering rams and cannons and says, this puppy is gone. Because God is a God of neverthelesses who destroys strongholds. The question is, are we willing to do what David did? Because David becomes a, a model for us that so we can look and say, this is what David did to have one of these nevertheless moments. Are you and I willing to do what David did so that we could have one of those nevertheless moments in our lives? The first thing that David teaches us, that models us to have a nevertheless moment, is David turns a deaf ear to those old voices. Remember those mockers on the wall? Remember those people that taunted David and said, you will not come in here. The lame and the, they'll, they'll, they'll keep you off. There's no way, David. There's no way. David dismisses those words and gets back to the task at hand. See, 500 years later, long after David has died, Nehemiah, on these very same walls, he took the same exact approach. In his case, the walls had been knocked down and the city had been destroyed. And Nehemiah, he came back to do a building program to rebuild the walls and rebuild the city. And and when he shows up to begin this, this reconstruction project, that's when the critics show up. They tell him to stop. They plan to interfere with his work. They, they, have, they list all the reasons as to why the wall shouldn't re, be rebuilt. They list all the reasons why it's not possible. But Nehemiah, just like David, he refused to listen to them. He tells the critics in Nehemiah 6.3, he says, I am carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave and go down to you? Nehemiah knew how to push the mute button on all of his critics and all of his dissenters, on those voices that try and keep him down. Jesus knew how to do this as well. 
In Matthew chapter 16, uh, the disciple Peter was trying to convince Jesus, hey, don't go to the cross. That sounds too drastic, Jesus. We don't want you to die. Don't go to the cross. And Jesus wouldn't even entertain that thought. And he says in in Matthew 16, he says, get behind me, Satan. I'm not going to listen to those discouraging thoughts. I know what I'm called to do. In Matthew chapter 9, there's a story of a little girl who had died. And Jesus told the crowd, verse 24, he says, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. And it says, but they laughed at him. They laughed at him. They said, no, this little girl's dead, Jesus. What are you talking about? You don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. You know how Jesus responded to those doubters? It says in verse 25, after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he took the girl by hand and she got up. He silenced them. See, what happens, what happens is we usually have two types of thoughts, two voices that will vie for our attention. Sometimes these voices, these thoughts, they come from people around us. And sometimes these are our own voices within our own heads. One voice says, yes, you can overcome this. Yes, this is possible. The other voice says, no, no, you can't. One voice says, God will help you. The other voice says, God has left you. One voice speaks the heaven, the the, the language of heaven and says, all things are possible. And the other voice speaks the language of the Jebusites and says, even the lame and the blind will keep you away. One proclaims God's strengths. The other proclaims all of your failures. One looks to build you up. The other looks to tear you down. These are the two voices that constantly are fighting for our attention. And here's the thing. If David could ignore those negative voices, if Nehemiah could choose what voices he listened to, if Jesus could put mute on those negative voices, then why can't you and I? We have to be selective with the voices that we allow to influence us. We have to learn like David did. We have to learn to turn a deaf ear to those old negative voices so we can lean in and hear God's word to us, to hear the plans that God has for us. Because God has plans and he says, I love you. I have plans for you. I have a purpose for you. We have to learn like David to turn a deaf ear to those old voices. But secondly, the other thing that David is going to model for us is that we have to open our eyes to new choices, to new ideas, to new opportunities. You see, everybody else came to Jerusalem and they saw the big walls and said, man, this seems so difficult. This seems impossible. But David didn't see what everybody else saw. David, when everybody else saw walls, he saw a water shaft. Look at what it says in verse 8. It says, and David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. See, ancient Jerusalem, it got its water from the, from the Gihon Spring outside of the city walls. So the Jebusites, they had the spring outside the city walls. They had built this, this, this underground canal, basically, that would bring water into the city that they would use for whatever purposes that they needed to in the city. And the Jebusites, sure, they had great defenses. They had these great walls, these great watchtowers. But when God's on your side, all things are possible. And sometimes 
All God wants us to do is look at things a little bit differently. Instead of going through the same emotions, sometimes all God wants us to do is do something a little bit different. Everybody else, they focused on the obvious. They focused on the walls. The only way to get into the city is to climb the walls, is to go through the walls. But David searched for the unusual, and he found the water shaft. Since David, since David did what nobody expected, he achieved what nobody imagined, and he took the stronghold. Maybe today, maybe you and I need to get creative with the strongholds in our lives. Instead of going and doing the same thing again and again and again and failing again and again and again, maybe we need to do something different to deal with our strongholds. I know of a lady I used to work with who struggled with anxiety. And what she did to combat that anxiety is she memorized large portions of Scripture. And when that anxiety would come, she would recite the Scripture and her mind would be cleared. I know of another guy who, who traveled often for business. And what he did is he said, he called the hotel in advance and said, hey, would you do me a favor? Would you take the TV out of my room? That way I'm not tempted to watch adult films when I'm alone in my hotel room. I know of another guy who got so tired of his own prejudices. He got so tired of them that he moved into the downtown area and he made new friends in a new neighborhood and he changed his attitude. Sometimes your and my nevertheless moment will require us to do something radical, to do something different, to do something new. Isn't it worth it though? Isn't it worth it for us to see these strongholds begin to fall by doing something different, by, by, by being open to what God would do through us? Finally, finally, the third thing that we see from David, he models, is he understood, he understood that success for him came from outside the city of Jerusalem. There was a hole outside of the city of Jerusalem that brought water into the city. And David said, this is what I'm going to go in to tap into the power so I can, so I can uh, defeat the city. But what's interesting is not far from the tunnel that David used to take the stronghold of city, the stronghold of Jerusalem, is an empty tomb. A tomb that Jesus' body once lay in. See, what David's tunnel did for him, Jesus' empty tomb does for us. Ephesians chapter 1 Verses 19 and 20 says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You see, the power for, for demolishing strongholds, it doesn't come from within us. It doesn't come from us being clever and creative. It comes from God. It comes from us coming into a relationship with him because there is power. There is power when we surrender our lives and our hearts into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We look and we say, you talk about a nevertheless moment. Jesus was dead. Nevertheless, he's alive today. And there becomes immense power when we say, Jesus, your power is what I'm relying on, not my own, but yours. Nevertheless, is a word that we don't write into our own story. It's a word that God writes into our story. He's the author of life. 
And the question is, are we willing to trust him as our savior? And are we willing to let him completely change our lives? I know for me, I know for me, I'd love a nevertheless moment to be written into my story. And if you want one of those nevertheless moments in your story, do what David did. Turn a deaf ear to those old voices. Open your eye to new choices. Look for the power of God through Jesus Christ. And who knows? You may just be a prayer away from a nevertheless moment because God loves to give them out. I mean, God gave them out. God gave one to Peter, to Pete. Remember Pete? We talked about Pete in the very beginning. He's the guy who, who speaks before he thinks. God gave Pete a nevertheless moment. The Pete who turned his back on his dear friend, remember him? God gave him a nevertheless moment and he released his tongue. For proof, you can read Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. When Peter preached and 3,000 people got saved that day. God turned the speak too soon Peter into the apostle Peter. Remember Joe the failure? Fired by his family, jailed by his employer. Could jobless Joe ever amount to anything? Sure he can. Joseph ended up becoming the prime minister of Egypt, the number two in power in all of Egypt. You can read his story in Genesis chapter 37 to 50. You can read about his nevertheless moment. And what about that five-time divorcee woman? John 4 tells her story of the woman who men discarded. This is the woman that Jesus discipled. The end of the story has this woman introducing her entire village to Jesus. She was the first missionary who went and told her city about who Jesus is and what he had done. You talk about a nevertheless moment. Nevertheless, Peter preached. Nevertheless, Joseph ruled. Nevertheless, the woman shared. Nevertheless, Jesus rose. And what about you? What is your nevertheless moment? Because God's power is alive today. And your nevertheless moment waits for you. Would you bow your heads with me? We know God's word says that our word, his word is not just to be heard. It's meant to be acted upon, to be lived out, to put into practice. So I just want to know today, what is your next step? For some of you, your next step is to deal with that stronghold in your life. You know you've got that weakness, that weak spot, that, that character flaw that you've excused for so long. It's just the way I am. I can't help it. It's the way I was raised. It's not my fault. Maybe for you today, today's the day that you say, no more. No more. I'm going to trust God to tear this stronghold down, to write that nevertheless moment in my life today. I came in to church today broken. Nevertheless, today I walk in the power of Jesus. Maybe today you need to receive the power of God that's offered through Jesus Christ on the cross. 
Because that is the only place that we find true power. Maybe today, maybe you think about David. You think about David and all he's been through. And how after 20 years, he finally got to see that promise come to fruition. Maybe today you need to see that God has a purpose through your current struggle. Through the the difficulty you're going through. Maybe you need to trust in God's plan. That God is doing something through you. Preparing you. Doing a work in your life. So he can prepare you for what he has for you in the future. I'm curious how many of you would would just slip up your hand today and say, You know what, Pastor? My, my, my next step today, my response is, is, is to deal with the stronghold. Today, I'm going to deal with the stronghold and I'm going to cry out to God. Would you just raise your hand and say, that's me today. That's my next step is I need to deal with this stronghold. Praise God. I see those hands. Strongholds come down today. Nevertheless, how many of you would say, I need to receive the power of God offered through Jesus Christ and trust him as my savior Trust him for strength, not in myself. How many of you would say, that's my next step, is I need to trust in that power today. Surrender to him. Praise God, I see those hands. I see those hands. And how many of you would say, you know, I just need to be reminded that God has a purpose for me. That God has a plan for me. And even though the difficulty I'm in right now, even though I don't understand, I'm going to trust his plan today. How many of you would say, that's me. I'm understanding that God, I see those hands. I see those hands. My hand is raised as well. God, I want to praise you for who you are. I want to praise you for your word. God, I pray that today would be a nevertheless kind of day that you would have spiritual victories within our hearts, within our lives. God, I pray that you would continue to do a work in our hearts. That, God, we would learn from from David. That we would model his attitude of, of turning a deaf ear to those old voices. Because, God, those old voices come chasing us down time and time again. God, I pray that you would help us to listen to your voice. To listen to your plans for our lives. God, I pray that you would help us, that we would open our eyes to new ideas. To, God, what it is you want to do through us. That we would see those victories today, God. God, I pray that you would help us to walk out of this building today. Not just hearing about the power of God. But God, we would walk out in your power. Trusting in Jesus. Trusting that Jesus is doing a work inside of our lives. God, I pray that your spirit would be with us. That we would move out of this place in your power and in your strength that today would be one of the days that is one of those nevertheless moments. God, we love you and I praise you and I ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen.